Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, a travel writer explores the wilds of British Columbia in search of Sasquatch. As a kid, like you're reading these books at night, right? And you know, here you're hearing about Ape Canyon and creatures attacking the cabin, and you know, it's it's a pretty frightening story. And this is not supposed to be fictitious. This is like a, a book that is purporting to contain stories that are real life stories. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it does make an impression on you as a kid. This podcast is brought to you by Reverse Speech Radio, a podcast committed to telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Using the exact same technology as the CIA, they know because they trained them. Join hosts Christian Dicadure and David John Oates every week and hear never-before-heard reversals, revealing the hidden truth. Catch politicians lying, climb inside the head of serial killers, even hear EVPs played in reverse. Who's lying? Who's telling the truth? All will be revealed on Reverse Speech Radio. New episodes drop every Thursday. Find out more at reversespeech.ca. Listen and subscribe at reversespeechradio.libson.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. John Zada is standing by with a gripping exploration of one of the world's most baffling mysteries, the existence of the Sasquatch. Just a reminder that I'll be back in the Coast to Coast AM air chair this coming Sunday, September 15th. You can go to coasttocoastam.com for details and to find a radio station near you that carries Coast to Coast. And if you want to keep track of what I'm up to, you can go to strangeplanet.ca and click on my events and appearances page, strangeplanet.ca. This is, of course, the anniversary of 9-11. I haven't forgotten, but I will have a special podcast for you this Friday on 9-11, and I've dipped into my audio archives and found an old interview I did with material scientist Dr. Judy Wood, who will present evidence the Twin Towers were disappeared, as she calls it, by a directed energy weapon. So look for that on Friday. In his first book, The Valleys of the Noble Beyond, In Search of the Sasquatch, John Zada details his journeys into the remote Great Bear Rainforest region of British Columbia, where he collected stories of Sasquatch from the First Nation indigenous communities and others. John is a journalist and photographer based in Toronto. He has an interest in adventure travel and remote regions which have taken him to some far-flung parts of the world. His work has appeared in such publications as The Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, The Guardian, The Telegraph, Travel and Leisure, BBC, CBC, Al Jazeera, New York Post, Explore, Mazenuve, Monte Cristo, The LA Review of Books, and Took and Canoe and Canadian Business. John Zada, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. You know, you're a you're a travel writer. You take wonderful photographs. You're a journalist. Did you ever imagine when you started off in your career 
that the first book, your first book, would be about Sasquatch? Uh, no, I did not have any idea about that. And in fact, it was quite the opposite. I've spent many years abroad working uh, in the Middle East as a journalist, as a documentary filmmaker, a uh, writer, photographer covering, I guess, what people would consider to be more serious, newsworthy stories, um, particularly Middle East related stuff like the conflict out there and, and maybe even just also doing some lighter stuff travel pieces and cultural pieces but no it never really crossed my mind that it would ever come to that and I think what had happened was um, I I'd spent several years living in you know in Dubai in Beirut in Cairo working as a freelancer and I got I got tired I got a little bit worn down from all of the the, the flying and traveling and all of the the demands of that work and I came back to Canada and started to do work here and as I started to travel across the country and see places that I've never seen and I, I, I became increasingly interested in in doing Canada related work and I think what happened was I just ended up in BC uh, an old interest in the Sasquatch drew me partly there partly for work and those two things basically came together and I came up with an idea for a book and why not? I mean, it is part of our of, of Canadian lore, certainly for the Pacific Northwest. I mean, the 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 term Sasquatch, I, I think, was coined by the Salish. Uh, That's right. I know you were north of Vancouver, but where exactly are the Valleys of the Noble Beyond? The title of the book is in the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, and that is my coinage. So people don't actually call it that. That title came from a conversation that takes place in the story in which a resident there described the area as the noble beyond, but 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 the actual region is known more as the Great Bear Rainforest, and it is it is an area the size of roughly Ireland. It extends from roughly the northern part of Vancouver Island all the way up to the Alaska Panhandle. So I would say the central and the north coast of British Columbia, and it is the largest intact temperate rainforest in the world it is it is a kind of a shangri-la a mountainous forested essentially rainforest that is that is pristine and and largely unviolated and has over the years um gotten some protection for for the environment there and it you know it, in a way if you could imagine a place where Sasquatches would reside and, and, you know, possibly even be a last holdout for Sasquatches if all other areas of the continent or the world became overrun by civilization, this would be the place. And when I grew up as a kid, I read Sasquatch books at the library when, when I used to go there. And, and a lot of the early research done by Sasquatch, um, I guess, uh, investigators here in Canada tended to focus on that part of British Columbia because there are indigenous communities there, they've got a lot of Sasquatch lore in their culture, and and it was an area of many, many, many reports, and um, I thought it would be really great to go to this wonder of nature, truly a jewel uh, in the Earth's crown of, of natural wonders, and also do a Sasquatch book at the same time about it. And how, do, how does one get to the, the, uh, the Great Bear Rainforest? By plane or by boat? Yeah, so there is only really one main road that reaches one community 
in the Great Bear Rainforest, a place called Bella Coola, and you'd have to drive probably about 20 hours or so to get there from, let's say, the lower mainland of British Columbia. But yes, you, you either fly from either Vancouver or uh, Port Hardy on the north tip of Vancouver Island, or you take ferries, um, again, also from Port Hardy, from the north end of the island, to the coast. Um, even float planes go there. So it, it, is an, it is a coastal region. It is an area defined primarily through because by its abundance of water and um, re- remote communities, small communities, some of them fly in. And yes, it, so it, it does it does take a bit of effort to to get to these places. But when you do get there, it, it's, it's quite rewarding. And tell me about the people uh, there. I mentioned Sasquatch is a Salish word, but is it part of the Salish nation or who lives on this land? They're a cluster of different First Nations peoples. And I, together, they call themselves the coastal First Nations. I guess that's that's more of a sort of a political alliance, I would say. But a handful of nations, they're, they're coastal Northwest indigenous people. They share primarily the same culture. They've been, their settlements have dated back. I think one is old as 14,000 years, but others, you know, 10,000, 11,000 years of age. And they range from anywhere from 1,500 people to maybe 40 people and lots of traditions, lots of stories. Uh, They were uh, hunters. They were people who lived lives based on fishing and, you know, cedar trees, creating products from that. They're, They're people of the land, essentially, and they are still there and have a lot of Sasquatch lore in their culture. And they give different names for the creatures. And so I basically went from community to community, spent time there, talked to the people, heard their stories, and uh, documented them for the book. They're, the place in their culture uh, spans storytelling. So they appear in their tales. They're considered real flesh and blood creatures as well. And then, you know, for others, they have a supernatural significance, sort of in the same way that people who have more of a metaphysical take on the Sasquatch see them as, you know, moving between dimensions and dematerializing and appearing and disappearing and that kind of thing. And uh, how easy or difficult was it to get uh, the locals there to open up and share this this knowledge with an outsider? Right. Well, historically, if you go back and look at the old, older research and the older Sasquatch books, like such as John Green's books, who uh, he, he was based out of Harrison Hot Springs in British Columbia. Um, they talked a lot about how you know native communities were were were, were reticent; they were more reluctant to speak. They were fearful of you know being ridiculed, and I think that was not just in part because they're indigenous and they were sort of looked down upon by by the white men, but also it was a sign of the times. And you go back to the 50s or the 60s or even the 70s, it was a more conservative time. But now with the internet and reality television and all these shows and finding Bigfoot, and it, it's the stigma doesn't really exist anymore. And so when I went to these places, I thought, okay, it's going to be a bit tough. Who the hell is this guy coming to the community asking these questions? And I thought there'd be a lot more work involved to, to, to get people to speak. But in fact, people were really, really, really... Um, enthusiastic about sharing their stories. And I think that's partly also because it's a subject that really excites people up there. And and the fact that someone from the outside is interested, I think also um, excited them as well. And have these stories been uh, that you received from them? Were they 
uh, passed down through the oral tradition, generation to generation, you know, stories maybe around the fireplace or the campfire, uh, a grandfather, a great-grandfather saw one in the woods or encountered one, uh, or, or were you getting also sort of some first-person eyewitness testimony? It was all of the above. So they, the stories ranged from, from you know, old family stories that uh, were had some kind of a supernatural element to them to something my grandfather or that my great-grandfather or that my cousin or that my uncle has seen or that I've seen. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it was basically everything. And, and children in these cultures, generally speaking, tend to um, be told Sasquatch stories, and I'm using the generic term Sasquatch, but it would differ from nation to nation, sort of scare stories to, to keep children in their place and to, you know, say that, you know, if, if you misbehave, you know, the Junaqua will come and take you and she's going to put you in her basket and go back to her cave and eat you. So a lot of people growing up in these communities tended to learn about these creatures by way of, of, of these stories when they were kids. And, and, and what, what that has, you know, in my view, and my experience has tended to do is it's caused a lot of them growing into adults to not believe in the Sasquatch. But then when if and when they do see one, their whole worldview changes. So often when someone tells you that they've seen one, they'll often preface the tale by saying their, their story by saying, you know, I never believed in this because I thought it was just a scare story when I was a kid. Could you share one of those stories that you received from, say, a young adult who who was skeptical, thought it was, you know, like the bogeyman? Uh, and, you know, then they ended up having their own encounter. Yes. So I traveled to a community called Klemtu, which is a small village of about 500 people on the north coast. It's uh, the, the main, the prime, primary town of the Kidasu Kheke's First Nation. And I was going for a hike up to a lake above the town. It's also the water reservoir where there's a lot of reports. And as I was coming back down the trail to the town there's a little salmon hatchery there where they uh where they help to support their salmon populations and i i, I met a young guy he might have been in his he was somewhere in his teens maybe in his mid maybe his late teens who uh, was who works there occasionally and i struck up a conversation with him and he told me that he had had a, he had had his own experience and basically what it had happened i think maybe the year before or the summer before and he had been doing an overnight shift at the hatchery. It was some kind of a, a job to, I guess, he was watching over the operations there over the evening. And he was sitting at a, at a desk by this window. And this is in the forest, mind you. It's right on the edge of town. And he said that at around 3 in the morning, uh, you know, he looked out the window. And there was a little bit of a light out there. And he saw this huge, hairy, muscular creature walk right past the him and his view of the window except he could see only like the body up until maybe the top of the chest the thing was so massive that its head was above the window and it basically like was tiptoeing and walked right by like it was almost as if it were unaware that he was there and it was maybe stealthily approaching the village and i think he got completely freaked out and then within an, the next minute or two the thing walked back again in the other direction, and so he got so scared he went and locked himself in the back room and basically stayed there till daylight, and then and then you know left and told everybody. Uh, 
and how how common are these stories uh, among the peoples of the Great Bear Rain, Rainforest? Does does every family have a, of a story, or I mean, give it a, give me a sense of how common or rare it is. Well, I would I would definitely say that because of the cultural tie-in, there is a lot more. There are more stories in these communities than in most, let's say, run-of-the-mill non-indigenous uh, Western or Pacific Northwest towns. Um, having said that, not everybody in these communities believes in them. And I, I did meet a lot of people who spend a lot of time out in the bush. They hunt, they they fish, they're, they're, they're really outdoors people. And I think that it's, par- it's partly a... It, an issue of the of the ego in some ways. I think that that those who really in those communities don't believe in them, uh, and perhaps rightly so. I mean, I, I I'm not I'm not so certain that I'm not 100% certain that they exist. But they say, well, if if they do exist, uh, I would have seen one by now. And you hear that from a lot of people. You hear, those who don't believe basically um, take that position because they feel that if they do exist, then that they themselves must see them. So, um, yeah, I would, and I can't give you an exact figure of, of the breakdown between, I didn't really take a poll or have any kind of numbers, but I mean, I would say for every, it's probably split half, I would say it's probably about half, half, or maybe, you know, two thirds believing or knowing or having stories and then a, a good solid third at a minimum who are like, no way. And and you mentioned that uh, you know as a as a, a young young man or as a child you you read stories about uh, a Bigfoot. Uh, do you remember which one that sort of initially captured your your imagination? Mm. Well, there is a famous story uh, about um, an incident in 1924 involving a bunch of miners who were prospecting in the Mount St. Helens area of southern Washington state. And they were in an area known as Ape Canyon. I mean, even, even, even just the name of the place uh, is, 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 you know, um, named after kind of these like monkey ape type creatures. It, it's, 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 it's got this ominous tone to it. They were there prospecting. They were apparently shadowed or stalked by uh, a bunch of Sasquatch. Um, one of them... One of the miners fired on the creatures, and I think it fell into the canyon. And they retreated to their cabin that night or the next night. And and what happened was, while they were at the cabin, they were basically swarmed by this troop or this group of Sasquatch that, over the course of the night, attacked them with rocks and with sticks and were banging on the walls and jumping up and down on on the roof. It was it was essentially a swarming, and. Um, afterwards, the, I mean, the attack let up, nothing happened. None of these creatures got into the, not got into the cabin, but when the miners got back to civilization, the newspapers picked up on the story. There was a huge hunt for the creatures. It, it made the papers. And I think, uh, later on when Sasquatch became more of a, of a pop culture thing and, and really hit, hit the news big time after 58 with the discovery of the tracks at Bluff Creek. People who were subsequently doing research about these old stories found them in the newspapers. I think it was the Oregonian, and then put them in the books. And I think as a kid, like you're reading these books at night, right? And and mm. you're, you know here you're hearing about Ape Canyon and creatures attacking the cabin, and like it's it's 
you know, it's it's a pretty frightening story. And this is not supposed to be fictitious. This is like a, a book that is purporting to uh, contain stories that are real life stories. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it it does make an impression on you as a kid. Sure, I can see why. You know, as yeah, you say, yeah. this is not uh, this is not comic book fantasy. This is a story that ended up uh, making the newspaper. And uh, did right. you read any of of uh, Burns' uh, early work? Like, you know, there was an article I think in McLean's magazine back in 1929. Although it was published on April Fool's Day, that might have been the the publisher's sort of uh, you know uh, joke. But did you read? Burns work as well. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I have, I have read some of his pieces, including the one that ran on that day. That, that, that I guess is the one that is most attributed to the coining of the word Sasquatch. And yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, this was back in the twenties, and and I think he continued to write a few more pieces into the early thirties. He was, he was uh, either a teacher or a principal or both uh, at a school on the native reservation in the area, and. And it's, you know, the sources are at odds in terms of what his real intentions and take were on on the issue. You have some people who claim that he never really believed in the Sasquatch and was just writing about it just more as a cultural thing and for fun. And then you have others who have said that, you know, no, he was actually really serious and he wanted to protect the creatures. And so, I mean, th- th- these are these are, of course, problems of scholarship and of history when, you know, uh, decades and, you know, almost a century has passed and the person's gone and you can't really, there isn't really much documentation. So I think the jury's out in terms of where he actually stood on it. But yes, his articles are still there. And I, I mean, at the very least, he was, he was interested in some manner. And I guess that must speak to, you know, uh, something within him, within his imagination. Uh, John, can you share another story, maybe one that was sort of passed down from generation to generation while you were uh, visiting the Great Bear Rainforest? Yeah, the uh, I was in, I believe it was Bella Coola, which is a Newhawk First Nation community. Um, it's on the inside coast, which is, which is, Bella Coola is, is let me just preface this really quickly by saying that Bella Coola is, generally considered to be a, a kind of the mecca of of Sasquatch in the Great Barrier Rainforest, and perhaps even in the whole BC coast. It's, it's an area of tremendous mountains, huge, huge valleys, and um, the Sasquatches there are reported to be, you know, everywhere and seen all the time. And so I was speaking with a carver who lives in the community who uh, he was, I think he might have been in his 70s when I met him several years ago and who who had a lot of uh part of a really big family with a lot of history in his family and he he spoke about i think it was his uncle who had been um out with with a buddy of his fishing and they had i guess pulled pulled uh ashore to i guess uh, spend some time and eat lunch uh, on shore and i think the uncle got up to go and like i guess you know take a leak or something or whatever. And so when he dropped his pants, he like looked through the bushes and there was this huge Sasquatch looking at him and it was like literally 10 feet away. So the, the thing, the thing that had happened was he'd, he'd wandered off to, you know, to relieve himself, but uh, he had, you know, without knowing it walked right towards a Sasquatch that was there, you know, in, in the trees, probably staring at them, watching them for as long as they had 
you know, had come ashore essentially. And he basically like turned around, ran, you know, ran off towards the boat, trying to pull his pants up and everything. And then he wasn't able to speak. And then his friend was like, what's going on? And he waved him over to the boat and then they end up, you know, taking off. And those tend to be, the, the, these tend to be the stories. It's like these close, these very, very short encounters uh, that don't last very long, and uh, you know both the Sasquatch and the humans involved, the people who see them uh, tend to be stunned for a period of time, and it's it's yeah, it's this kind of these 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 moments of almost trauma. It would seem. I, I can imagine it would be very traumatic. Yeah. Uh, have have the communities up there have they embraced? a Bigfoot or Sasquatch in the way, let's say, Roswell, New Mexico has embraced that whole phenomena with museums or at least, you know, they're they're proud of it, you know, welcome to Sasquatch country signs or anything like that? No, you don't You don't really get a lot of that up where I was traveling on the coast. And in fact, it's it's a little more the opposite. It's a, it's more low-key uh, because it's cultural. There is a bit of a, of a sacredness um, attached to the subject and not really much attempt to to cash in on it and you know, I mean but in contrast if you go to Harrison Hot Springs uh, which is you know 90 minutes east of Vancouver which is where you know JW Burns this teacher guy who we were just talking about earlier uh, you know coined this anglicized version of, of, of the native word there in Sasquatch that community has, embraced that whole thing and the tourism board promotes it there are statues everywhere there are these sort of painted footprints and and there is some degree of uh cooperation or collusion with the the local uh first nation there they put on a a, a kind of a, a festival called you know i i think it's sasquatch days once a once a summer and and where they do sasquatch dances and picnics and sort of outdoor stuff and so so you do find that 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 ritualistic, celebratory, um, you know, quasi-commercial aspect to it there. Um, I think partly because the uh, the town is is you know located off of the highway and there are tourists in, in the area and tourists go there anyway for the hot springs. So, but no, on the central and the north coast of BC, it's it's a lot more subtle. It's a lot more low key among the residents. There is a lot of banter and talk of Sasquatch informally, but no attempt to monetize it. And talk to me about the sacred nature of, of Sasquatch to them. Why they 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 look uh, at Sasquatch as a sacred creature? Well, again, for those who do subscribe to uh, their local variation of Sasquatch, to those people in those nations... Um, Many of them do consider them to be spiritual beings and beings who, you know, depending on the person, depending on the First Nation, depending on the creature, can be either benevolent, uh, good-natured generally, or malevolent. And so, I mean, I think, you know, in, 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 Bella, in the town of Bella Bella, I tended to hear more stories generally of the Sasquatch being, you know... Um, a nature being uh, who is a custodian of the wild places and 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 a creature that you know appears to you when there is something to be conveyed to you, a message for you to learn. Maybe you're struggling with something and and 
seeing a Sasquatch somehow um, is an indication. It, it, it acts as a herald almost. But, you know, in Bella Coola, I found, uh, gen again, generally speaking, there are exceptions, that the creatures are seen more as uh, beings to be fearful of, beings who can perhaps curse you or paralyze you or even through their gaze instigate death. They're, 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 they're almost taboo. They're things to avoid. And that's not to say that the creatures are necessarily evil or seen as evil. It's just that maybe humans aren't meant to come across them and it's something to be avoided and something that is, that is unfortunately to a lot of people, they're worthy of uh, a terrible fate. And so there, those things constitute a kind of sacredness, I would say. Sure. Not something, you know, to, to, in the sense of that, in the sense of the creature not being something uh, to be trifled with. Right, right. This is not uh, yeah. kitsch. This is, uh, yeah. yeah, this is serious business. It's, it's serious business, exactly. Are there any stories, legends about individuals being carried off? Uh, I mean, I think there is a story, it might have been up in the Northwest Territories or someplace about, I think there was a Canadian version of a, you know, the prospector story of someone who claimed he was kidnapped. Are there any stories like that in the Great Bear Rainforest? Well, I mean, you, you, you hear apocryphal stories that are not really attributed to anyone in particular, but you hear s things about how way back, maybe a century ago or over a century ago, something had happened to somebody. I, I think there, one story, again, in, in the Newhawk uh, territory that I'd heard involved uh, a hunter who had been, he'd been, I guess, on his fishing boat and he traveled to a remote inlet and and got i guess captured by a sasquatch that had wrapped him up in cedar bark and had i guess like wrapped him in such a way like he, he'd taken the guy and wrapped the cedar bark around him by while pressing him against a tree or something and so you do hear, hear these like vague stories um in, in Wicano, further south, uh, there was a story about these guys from the village who'd gone to a remote valley and uh, they never came back. And then when they went to send people to find them, they found their bodies missing without their heads and stuff. There is lore, but it tends to be fairly remote in time and ambiguous and not necessarily involving anybody, um, any specific person in the community in particular. And while you were there... Uh, were there reports of a a recent sighting, or even a sighting while you were while you were present, not necessarily in the exact location, but while you were in the in the vicinity? No, well, I guess it depends how recent. So, um, on my first trip there, which was which was this was prior to working on the book, it was it was the trip that had convinced me that I should work on a book. Stuff had been happening, you know, weeks days and even months a few months before i had arrived and so yeah there were loads of loads of sightings you know sasquatches coming into town in the middle of the night banging on people's you know walls of their homes um rock throwing incidents i mean basically the whole gamut uh, that 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 year was was full of reports and then when i went back the following year to write the book i had come across in Klemtu, it was it was these construction worker guys who were from the lower mainland of BC, and they were living in a in a trailer there, you know, building new new homes for the community. And 
um, it, they were asking me what I was doing there. I didn't actually solicit them for any information. They were like, hey, what are you doing here? I'm like, hey, I'm you know, working on a travel memoir about the Sasquatch. And they're like, you know, funny you should mention that. Like just the other night we were in our trailer and I'm a hunter and, you know, my buddy here is a hunter too. And there's this thing screaming on the mountaintop. It was like, we've never heard anything like that before. And so there were a couple on the return trip, but it wasn't as, the, the reports were not as numerous. And, and the locals there will tell you that these, that, that, that incidents tend to come in waves. And I think my initial trip prior to my book trip was at the tail end of one of those waves. And then when I went back, things had started to quiet down a little bit. More of my conversation with John Zada when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. I'm so pleased to welcome back Ancient Life Oil to Conspiracy Unlimited as a sponsor. I've been taking their amazing non-GMO CBD oil for some time now. I take a full eyedropper under the tongue every day. It's made in the USA from American industrial hemp and then blended into a base of coconut, hemp, and grapeseed oil for maximum absorption. It's one of the purest and highest grade CBD oils on the market. If you have anxiety or stress, who doesn't? Why not have some CBD from Ancient Life Oil? A little bottle can be a big relief. CBD naturally supports your body's endocannabinoid system and can potentially have huge therapeutic benefits. Go to ancientlifeoil.com and get free shipping on all orders of $100 or more within the United States. Use the coupon code FREE100. Ancient Life Oil, the Ferrari of CBD oils. Richard is a very strong and handsome man, just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day, and it was good, good, a handsome man, Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. John Zada stays with us, the author of In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, In Search of the Sasquatch. Uh, so tell me about Dr. John Bindernagel, the late Dr. John uh, Bindernagel, how you, you met with him, and tell us a little bit about him. So John was a wildlife biologist uh, who lived on Vancouver Island in the town of Courtney. He's from you know Guelph, Ontario originally, and he's essentially a scientist who became interested in the Sasquatch from an early age. He was, he was an undergrad at uh, you know the University of Guelph studying wildlife management. While he was there, he came across an article in a magazine uh, about the creatures, and he you know he brought the subject up in class uh, to his professor, and his professor ridiculed him in front of all of the other students and really embarrassed him and upset him. And then John decided from that moment forward he would he would find the truth of you know. He, he would go in search of the truth of this whole matter, and it stuck with him his whole life. And, and you know, what, what made John, you know, interesting was that he, well, one, he, he, he believed that the Sasquatch was an ape. It was a, it was a, he called it North America's great ape. He wrote a book about it, and he, you know, he did a bunch of research and discovered that or, or you know, or noticed that a lot of the behavioral attributes of the Sasquatch coincided a lot 
exactly with those of the great apes and and monkeys and and whatnot and and that was you know the thesis of his book and he he was he was on a crusade to convince his scientific colleagues to convince the public that at the very least this was a subject worthy of further scientific exploration i mean he didn't expect you know people to be converted to his position but he, it, 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 it disappointed him to no end that his colleagues and the general public poo-pooed the subject. And that, you know, I reached out to him when I, you know, um, when I was going to do my trip to the Great Bear to stop there and Courtney to, to meet with them. And I spent time with him and, and, and got to hear a lot of his stories about, you know, um, his evolution as a Sasquatch researcher, the work he had done and, um, the problems, the professional problems that he faced trying to bring this to the attention of his scientific colleagues, whom he considered to not be interested because they didn't really know about it. Right, right. And you met him towards, I guess, right near the very end of his life. He passed away in 2018, I think. Yeah. Um, there... Was he? Was he? I mean, at towards the end of his life, was he? Was he uh, sad that you know that he hadn't discovered the truth about Sasquatch? You know, the habeas corpus. You know, there was, no one has ever found a a body. Was he looking to pass the torch? What was his mood? I think. I think part of the crisis for him of his life was that as you know, as he got older and older, he he felt that. You know, he faced the prospect of death without, you know, um, you know, proving it to the world. But also, um, his he was fearful that his work would become eclipsed by this tsunami of material on the internet and you know, books, self-published books by non-scientists and 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 you know, he he when he got the diagnosis for his cancer, which is which is what which is what you know took his life in the end. He quadrupled his efforts to get his material on the internet and to to document reports and to do more speaking engagements and it, it was an existential crisis for him and I think um, I, I I think you know he he was quite he was quite stoic about it at the same time but I don't know he, there was a kind of almost emergency in his own mind of of you know, if I don't get if I don't get a certain amount of work done in a certain amount of way in a certain way, um, then it will all have been for naught. And yeah, I don't know. It depends. You know, his moods shifted. There were moments where he was a bit more circumspect about it and, and calm, but then there were moments when he was just frustrated. And and yes, those last those last years, those last months were 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 um, periods of feverish, feverish work to make sure that there was some kind of a legacy. Did he have any advice for, for you? Well, no, he, I think he was appreciative that, you know, I was contributing something. And, and, and also he was a bit envious because he couldn't get away to the central and north coast as often as he wanted to. The place where I went to, the Great Bear, even though it was very close to where he lives, it's kind of ironic. I'm from Toronto. It's like, 10 times the distance for me to, to go there. But, um, um, I think, I think, I think he was happy that I would check in with him from time to time. I did stay in touch with him after the, you know, the initial trip for the book and everything and, and, and did often tell him, I said, John, man, like, you know, um, 
science and discoveries and 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 it's it's a collective effort and just because you're not the guy to have made you know the the the, the final call on this doesn't mean that you did not contribute to the overall effort and I think he appreciated that. Right. Uh, it's like, what's that old saying? Was it Voltaire? If I have seen further, it's because I've stood on the, the shoulders of giants. <laughs> right. We were talking about the late Dr. John Bindernagel. Uh, just one more uh, thing I wanted to address before we move on, and that is this story that uh, shortly before his death, I'm not sure, sure the timing of it, but shortly before it's de- his death, it is... Uh, alleged that he was taken by someone to see a dying Sasquatch that was called Fox. Are you familiar with your story and uh, with that story? And what are your thoughts? No, actually, I I don't know that that story. I know that he had, in his you know time as a researcher, found tracks. I know that um, he I think traveled to Kentucky to a habituation site there and had he thinks maybe had glimpsed the sasquatch so i mean my latest knowledge w- was that he had come close but um he didn't know he didn't actually share that story with me where, where where did you find that uh it was i just i, I was doing a search on uh, dr Bindernagel. uh i'll have to and it's just i scribbled it in my notes but i'll have to look back uh, okay. I googled it, <laughs> basically. I, I know, I know, I know. I mean, it's possible. I know that he had. I mean, he he was really very well liked, really popular guy. Had a lot of contacts across North America. John didn't just focus his researches uh, on BC, and so, um, and I know that he had traveled to a lot of different places and was shown a lot of, uh, you know, evidence. In, in, in regional parts of North America, so it's 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 you know it's not impossible that somebody may have may have actually you know called him over to to see something in some place. I, uh, I have I have the name Sally Ramey or Ramy written mm. uh, here in the notes, uh, like a fellow researcher that apparently went with right. him. So, okay. uh, who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I didn't I didn't hear that story. Uh, Share another story, maybe a, a, a favorite of yours uh, from your encounter with the peoples of uh, Great Bear Rainforest. Well, you know, the, the, I've got another story that I haven't talked about yet, and this one didn't didn't really make it into the book. So many stories didn't make it into the book because, you know, there isn't enough uh, room. And also my book deals with a lot of other subjects. But, um, I, you know, and this one I'm about to relate isn't isn't. A favorite of mine so much because of um, the, the 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 amazingness of the encounter or the alleged encounter, but just just um, more of an example of just how casual uh, these encounters can be. And so I I was in uh, on a place called Denny Island at the the pub there having a meal, and um, across from my table was a fisherman. There were a lot of commercial fishermen. Who go up there in the summertime to fish during the windows there that that come up for a few days at a time and and um, he had overheard my conversation about my research for the book and he proceeded to tell me that he had his own what he believed to be a Sasquatch story of his own and and you know he basically stopped eating and just you know turned around and, and told me how how him and another fishing colleague and he said I think this was back might have been in the 90s, late 90s or the early 2000s, he was on the north coast, north of where I was at the time on Denny Island. He was off of an island called Renison Island, um, closer to uh, a town called Prince Rupert. And he was anchored for the night uh, 
right off a tiny little islet, which is off of Renison Island. And him and his colleague were, his pal, I guess, they were fishing, they were asleep. And they said that they were woken up by what he said sounded like uh, a huge person, like a person with huge lungs, retching and throwing up and coughing. Something was sick in the bush just a short distance away on this islet. And it was pitch black. They couldn't see anything. But this thing that looked like for like 10 minutes was like coughing and barfing and retching. And they said that they were that they were completely, completely afraid, um, not only because they were in the middle of nowhere, but that this thing, whatever it was, sounded like it sounded like a like a person, like a person breathing, a person coughing. It, it, it didn't sound like uh, like an animal. And so they basically pulled anchor and and you know, left. And, and so, um, when I, when I told some people on, on Denny Island about the story, like, like later that afternoon or the next day, uh, you know, about this fisherman guy, well, they, you know, they said to me, Oh, you know, like maybe that may, maybe the guy that they heard was people, you know, on Denny Island, it's, it's a non-indigenous community. And, and so there's a lot less belief of the Sasquatch are, even though they're right next to Bella Bella and there's loads of Sasquatch reports there, but the, but you know the non-native people were like, well, maybe maybe those fishermen guys heard heard kayak Bill being sick, and I'm and I'm like, well, who's this kayak, kayak Bill? Bill? And, and and apparently there was the, there was a guy who used to live in the community there, uh, you know, a non-native guy who uh, used to sell, you know, he was kind of a watercolorist or a painter by winter, and then in the summer he would kayak alone. He was kind of this hermit guy who would kayak alone on the north coast. He would. He built all these different shacks on these little islands on the north coast, and he would spend his summers kind of as a hermit kayaking, and then come back and begin the year again by selling his paintings. And then he he vanished one day, never came back. Um, no one knew, knows what exactly happened to him. So it, I kind of found that to be a really really beautiful encapsulation of life on the coast. You've got all this, you know, you know, dead serious Sasquatch lore, and then you've got these stories of characters and and it's just i mean it's just and it also goes to show it's a little bit of an object lesson too in terms of the whole conundrum of like the conundrum of like you know what is the sasquatch is the sasquatch really a creature or is it is is it is it something that we 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 misperceive and and i mean it's all sort of built into that story there right right uh yeah just so many wonderful uh, legends and and stories up there. Uh, you know, it, it harkens back to the to yesteryear when that was our entertainment. Really, we were sitting around a fire and sharing all of these stories, whether it was Sasquatch or what, whether it was you know uh, the kayak Bill. Um, right. <laughs> um, and did you go out there basically to? simply to speak to people or were you was there any interest on your part sort of getting out and, and doing a little field research for yourself in hopes of catching a glimpse did, did someone take you to a spot where bigfoot had f frequented yeah well i mean yes the, those two motives went hand in hand i mean i felt that there there in the towns there would be the, the tales but then you know it's it's funny when you spend time in a given community it doesn't matter which one and you, and you hear repeatedly stories over and over again, they will, those stories will adhere to certain places. And you hear the names of these, of these, you know, creek systems, these rivers, these bays, they come up over and over and over again, you know, old village sites. And so 
what ends up happening is, um, you know, I, I didn't have my own transportation there, but everybody who lives in the towns, they do, right? They've got their own boats. That, that's, that's like having cars in the cities, essentially. And so um, at, at every occasion, uh, I, I would ask people if they could take me to where they're going, if they're going for, if they're going fishing or if they're going to be doing any kind of, you know, there's all sorts of business one can attend to on the coast. So I did hitch a lot of rides and spend time with people and go see spots. And, and, you know, it's really interesting. Sometimes I found myself even by accident, like someone would be like, Hey, what are you doing? You want to come for a ride? I go, yeah. And I go with them. And then I would end up in the place where I would discover later or, or at the time that I got there, that this is where a Sasquatch came and like visited a bunch of people at the cabin here kind of thing. So, so, so yes, I was really lucky. I did, I, I did manage to make uh, acquaintances and friends and they were totally cool with me and they took me out and I got to actually see a lot of the places that were the venues for the story. So not only did I have the stories, but I also eventually got to have a visual of the place and then when I would go back and talk to the people later about what happened, I could even talk to them about exactly where stuff happened. And, you know, like uh, I, I had a I had a visual map in my own mind that that would make the story clearer for me. John, thank you so much for this. I enjoyed spending some time with you. Thanks so much. It was really fun. OK, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back with a word or two about an upcoming episode of Conspiracy Unlimited. People are starting to finally discover my strange planet shop, and they are loving the gear. The Mayan calendar design seems to be very popular right now, and it's beautiful if I do say so myself. Rick Forgus from Atomic Werewolf Studios in Phoenix has done an absolutely amazing job with all of the designs. The Nazca Lines design is also fantastic, but I think my favorite right now is the Time to Redefine Reality t-shirt. But there's so much more than tees. There's mugs and leggings and tote bags and sweatshirts and hoodies and new designs and products arriving every week. You've got to check it out. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the Strange Planet Shop button at the bottom of the page. Strangeplanet.ca. It's a strange planet. Grab the gear. Take the journey. Coming up next time on episode 280, a 9-11 special, Dr. Judy Wood presents evidence a directed energy weapon was used to bring down the Twin Towers. Yeah, I was in the faculty conference room and looking at the TV set of the building, you know, frothing up into dust, and they're calling it a collapse. And they're like, wait a minute, you, know, you guys aren't buying this, are you? It's, it's, there's something wrong with the story. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs> <laughs>